Thanks for joining us this week, and welcome to Mutuality Matters, a weekly podcast hosted by CBE International, where our mission is to promote the biblical message that God calls women and men of all cultures, races, and classes to share authority equally in service and leadership in the home, church, and work. Enjoying the podcast? Let us know. Send a recording or written testimonial to podcast at cbeinternational.org of why Mutuality Matters matters to you, and we may feature you on an upcoming episode. The opinions expressed in CBE's Mutuality Matters podcast are those of its hosts and guests and do not purport to reflect the opinions or views of CBE International or its members or chapters worldwide. The designations employed in this podcast and the presentation of content therein do not imply the expression of any opinion whatsoever on the part of CBE concerning the legal status of any country, area, or territory, or of its authorities, or concerning the delimitation of its frontiers. Let's get into this week's episode. Hello, everyone. You are listening to CBE's podcast, Mutuality Matters. This is part two of Global Impact. Our team is Mimi Haddad and Kimberly Dixon. And we are excited that you are joining us for part two with Dr. Beth Birmingham on egalitarian theology and human flourishing. Listening to leaders like Beth who served around the world in over 30 countries. I know you will learn and be encouraged by her experience. And thank you for joining us with part two. So Beth, working as a humanitarian and as a teacher of leaders, what changes have you seen as a result of Christians taking their faith seriously as it elevates rather than diminishes the status of women, their gifts, their calling, their leadership, the whole enchilada? Yeah. So as CBE has started to expand beyond its original boundaries and you have started moving into moving the conversation in other sectors, I see people starting to pick up on that. So that's a very good thing. Um, Corporate research has started moving in this direction. So, you know, more than CBE, more than development journals, the first things that our leaders in faith-based development sectors in the West are picking up are things like the Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, the latest Harvard Business Book. Again, because we're trying to solve our organizational challenges and insights for growth, et cetera, et cetera, um, based on our best practices in another sector, in the business sector. There's some positives with that. There's a lot of negatives with that, and I could make an entire podcast on that one. Um, But so as a result, I'm starting to see more and more nonprofits think about um, women in leadership because it is thankfully social media has kept it at the forefront since the Me Too movement. Breaks your heart that it takes that kind of a travesty uh, in the public sphere to make it to the public sphere to move us when I think many of us have known that this is the re- lived experience you know, for years um, but until it becomes a media darling and a media spotlight it takes us a while to, to get on board. So the Me Too movement forward, we've seen more of a focus on getting women. So I do see more and more intentionality around recruiting women for boards, recruiting women for executive teams. Not as much in the CEO seat, but there's been some, there's been some uh, in the faith-based development sector I did some quickie research, probably 2016, and we were looking at um, like less than 5% women executives 
in the faith-based development sector. Today, it's more like um, 12% if you look at senior leadership team and CEO. And then if you want to go the next layer down, it goes up a bit. But still lagging behind the secular NGO world and the corporate world. Um, but you're seeing more like, you know, the Gates Foundation and um, Melinda Gates Moment of Lift and books like that that are putting the research out there. So I'm seeing some positives. I'm also seeing, you know, we have some beautiful brothers. There's, there's so many good brothers in the sector. I don't believe that we are where we are out of anybody's malicious intent. I really don't. I see this as, again, that tyranny of the urgent. Uh, CEOs and leaders being measured by a board of directors who doesn't always really understand global development. And so they too are using, you know, metrics from the corporate world because that's all they know. Um, donors who, again, maybe don't understand what good development is versus really good marketing about good development. <laughs> so I, I look at some of these organizations and their marketing spin on what they're doing versus what they're doing in the field is just, it's just wrong, you know, but, but foundations, you know, they, they tend to go by that kind of information as well as some of the collected data. So there's multiple reasons, but I, I see some people who are bucking the trends. I'm going to call out a couple. I don't want to embarrass them. Um, but Mile Green is a new CEO at World Relief. And I think he's a standout. You know, yes, he's a white man, and God made him a beautiful white man who seems to have an African heart. So you go figure that one out. He spent many <laughs> years living in Africa, and um, his colleagues, what they'll say about him is, Mile is more of an African woman than many African women are. <laughs> So maybe that's why I love him, because I, too, have a deep love for the continent. Um, but he's, you know, he's stepping up and he's doing what needs to be done to put in place um, ways of measuring improvement for women and women and men. So policies on paternity leave, policies on maternity leave, representation of women around leadership tables. We have some some tools. If organizations are interested in learning, the Wheaton Gender um, Initiative, Mimi, that you called out earlier, we created a scorecard that organizations can use, development organizations in particular, can use to measure um, their the internal functioning of their organization. And then there's a piece of it that talks about their field work. But what we've seen in the development sector is they're very good at measuring women and girl beneficiary stuff. They're not very good at measuring the policies, procedures, behaviors, et cetera, going on inside the organization and how their women experiencing it, experience it. And that is what the Christian Alliance for Inclusive Development is focusing on. So regular data collection about the lived experience of all those women and male allies who are doing the serving. So Mile Green at World Relief is one. Peter Greer has had some great ideas on how to create a more balanced lifestyle for you know, leaders at Hope International. Um, and he's been you know, just a faithful supporter in this effort. Has he been able to make all the strides he wants? Probably not. You know, 
um, we need to embrace that there's multiple ways to measure some of this stuff. We can't just rush to one or two metrics. Um, Mike Mantel at Living Water, you know, now there's an organization that happens to hire a lot of engineers <laughs> and that hasn't tended to be a, a field, you know, filled with women. But um, so the nature of the work they do has been, I think, some of the challenge to attracting women. But I know Jonathan Wiles, his chief operating officer, and Mike are both very committed to more gender balanced uh, organizations. And then the one organization that has always been way out ahead of all the others is World Vision. Uh, love them or hate them, and I happen to love them. Um, they're huge. They're the largest faith-based NGO in the world. But they have been very intentional for at least, at least 20 years in developing women leaders. So that what I mentioned to you that programs that I ran at Eastern University. One was a program in partnership with World Vision. It's called Pathways to Leadership to develop their women to become country directors, regional vice presidents, you know, senior level leaders. Had about 600, 540 World Vision employees through that master's program over an 11 year period. Wow. They were intentional. There were two or three people from every country, very few Westerners. It was intended for our colleagues around the, you know, the world and the countries where they served. 52%, I believe, of the participants in that program were women. They wow. were intentional about it. And that was back in 1998. You know, so this is a group that was kind of, so they're seeing the fruits of that labor today. If you look around the world vision structure, it's filled with brilliant women and wonderful male allies who look at me and say, gosh, I never really knew there was any other way to do it because they've been doing it for a while. Does it make them perfect? Are there still cases of this, that, and the other going on? Absolutely. We are fallen. We are all fallen people in need of a savior. But they systemically and structurally started to address the issue long time ago, and they are bearing the fruits of their labor in their performance metrics, in their organizational growth, in their annual fundraising, et cetera. So. Fan, big fan of World Vision. Plus, they had that curriculum on paths of flourishing for women and channels yes. of hope for women, yeah. which which yeah. CBE, CBE consulted on, and it was so powerful. I just so way ahead of other groups. And so, amen. Well, and interesting to note, prior to her becoming president of Eastern University, right, right. Roberta, Dr. Roberta Hestinus was chair of the board yeah. of World Vision. Glad you, know. you said that. Glad you said yeah. that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. So that's way ahead. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So then, what do you think? There. Yeah. Then, what do you think hinders um, the results of some of these changes these organizations are are implementing? Yeah. So going back to that tyranny of the urgent, that's one of it. Mm -hmm. um, what it boils down to is leadership will. I'm going to call out two things, two excuses, if you will, that I think um, bear discussing. One is um, theology, and they sort of go hand in hand. 
these organizations are afraid of imposing their theology on their country offices around the world or even stating a theology themselves. So it allows their individual supervisors and individual leaders to interpret for themselves what of their own theological backgrounds they can bring to the office. Mm-hmm. So you can, and this is why people will always say, how you experience an organization comes down to the supervisor you got lucky enough to get. You can have a, a, a supervisor who's an egalitarian who absolutely is putting you forward, stretching you, mentoring you, making sure you're being invested in. You can have one who still lives because this church background lives by the Billy Graham rule. You're left out of meetings. You don't get to travel with the team, and you're not allowed to you know, be mentored and coached behind closed doors. Can you quickly say the Billy Graham rule for those of us who don't know what you're referencing? Yeah, so Billy Graham had created a rule back in the day, and again, his heart was right. His intent was right, and I'm going to say back in the 60s or 70s, um, probably around Youth for Christ, this would have been, so about women traveling with men on the team that women could potentially be a distraction, that there was potential for women and men having affairs, colleagues, you know, having affairs, um, that men didn't, shouldn't be put in situations where they might be tempted. You know, so the woman is the temptress, et cetera. And so the Billy Graham rule became, um, if you're going to travel, stay at different hotels, which the practicality and the funding of that you know, gets challenging. Um, don't mentor, don't take your women direct reports out to lunch because that can be seen as a more intimate exchange. Don't be behind closed doors with a woman. So any kind of conversations, mentoring, coaching, you know, can be a challenge. And there's varying degrees at which people exercise these. Absolutely, you know, women and men need to be adults and, and, um, and, I don't want to say keep a check on their sexuality, but yeah, we need to be professionals. Just come to work and be a professional. You know, don't undress me. Don't, you know, sexualize because I'm wearing a skirt today and you can see my knee, you know. <laughs> um, just treat me as a professional and I'll treat you as one too. So that's the Billy Graham rule in a nutshell. And that's still alive today. In fact, right. there's one NGO that was contemplating reinforcing it, making it public policy, making it policy. Uh, that, within the last within the last two years, if you can believe it. Well, Beth, but really, what part of the pornified world, you know, intersects with those rules at this point? What is the relationship between the rule itself and Christian yeah. men using porn at the same level as the culture we live in? Yeah, yeah. Now it's but the rule. Point. The rule was meant to protect both men and women from sexual impropriety in theory. But um, what's happened is women have been left out in the sense, if you think men go golfing and discuss business issues, they go out to lunch or they meet after work and women aren't accepted there. And because of these issues, and so they're left out of all the development, the decision-making, and so it's hard for them to be able to be in the levels of leadership as the men. Right, exactly. And and so what you're saying is some of these organizations are, they haven't really looked at those implications, and they are considering reenacting this Billy Graham rule. And while at the same time, there's a lot of 
conversation in organizations that understand that women and men are made in the image of God, trying to figure out how do we um, deal with, as Mimi said, this pornographic world and the, the fallenness of who we are while also making sure we're not keeping women from the centers of discussions and leadership. It's yeah. Well, and this is what, you know, I, I categorize these two things that I'm talking about. One is theology, one is culture, and it's, the, it's I call it the lies we tell ourselves. <laughs> mm-hmm. So we hide behind a theology that I don't actually think when you start to br- pull away the bricks of a patriarchal or complementarian theology, it starts to break down. Mm-hmm. People don't truly live it out. They just, it's easy to hide behind it for the purposes of let's just end the discussion and move on in our organizations. So if it truly is to protect men from being put in those situations, have you ever heard any organization say, Bob, I am so sorry you're not comfortable traveling with a woman. We will miss you from this trip. Hmm. Right. The default is that the woman will stay home. Right. And, and miss the opportunity, the professional opportunity that travel and being present at you know a table and a conversation, et cetera, has her. So if we truly are about protecting the men, absolutely. If you are a man that's vulnerable to those challenges, absolutely don't travel with women, but you stay home and tend the women. Excellent. Um, and I know you're going to get, so any criticisms that you want to send on anything that Beth Birmingham has said today, do not send them to Mimi Haddad. Beth-Christianalliance.org. Well, I'm really glad to receive all of your crankiness. Uh, (laughs) So that's one. So the other is the culture. So let's talk about culture. Many a Western, and and this has become a really tricky situation as we talk about decolonizing and, you know, colonialist backgrounds, et cetera. So many an organization says that they're too concerned about imposing Western um, ideals on the field offices, except number one, the moment we walk out of our door, we are countercultural because we're walking out the door in the name of Jesus, and He was all about turning tables and changing culture and and mm-hmm. and speaking against the culture of this uh, world and and drawing us towards a kingdom culture. Number one, number two. We have no problem imposing Western culture around the world when it comes to you can't hire your family members and we want your monthly data reports and finance reports in these 40 pages and they have to be formatted exactly like that because that's how we do it in the West to make sure that we keep track of everything. But then when you say, what about the way women are treated in the Latin America office? in the Africa office. Oh, we don't want to impose Western culture in those places. And I cry bull, (laughs) I cry foul. Yeah. You have no problem imposing business ideology, Western business ideology, because it's in your organization's best interest. But when it comes to the man who daily sexually harasses the secretary, who pats the so-and-so on a part of her, you know, um, body that she doesn't want to be patted on, patronizing comments, threatened without, you know, job promotions if you don't provide X, Y, Z. And then that is taking it a step too far. We don't want to step into that part of culture. No, 
No. We are either organizations about kingdom business or we're not. And if you're okay. not, then give up your, your tax exempt status. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> oh my goodness. I love the way your brain works. <laughs> what a prophetic good voice. We yeah. could talk for days on these topics. <laughs> I would love to. <laughs> so Beth, uh, I'm really glad you mentioned culture and theology and how they the interplay between these two concepts and what they can open up for the world and how they can confuse the conversation. And so we'd like to hear your thoughts on, you mentioned secular organizations, humanitarian organizations like the UN, who recently, and, and also the Gates Foundation and the IMF for that, the major secular humanitarian organizations have noted how things improve when women come to the tables of decision-making. And this we see yeah. this in the research from the Peterson Institute that looks at business. Yeah. Yeah. But the UN has specifically cited the role of religious leaders, right? In moving the needle forward on humanitarian goals that religion is a gatekeeper. It either advances women's equality and therefore humanitarian work, or it shuts it down. Now, I have examples from my own work in East Africa, how that's played out, but I've seen it happen. What about you? Yeah, yeah. Well, and again, I come back to, um, sadly for the UN, they need to hire some more theologians. I don't think they're willing to broach the topic of theology and challenge wrong theologies when they themselves don't feel like they can stand in the conversation and that they can stand in the argument. So um, they're afraid to challenge the theologies that they hear from their community because they can't, you know, stand into that conversation. So that's one thing that, you know, they can address. Um, religious patriarchy as the greatest obstacle to humanitarian goals. insofar as that religious patriarchy as it influences worldview and the worldview of the communities they serve. Absolutely. Absolutely. But again, when you start to press in and pull the bricks down from a patriarchal theology, it starts to be dismantled. So number one, where was all of this belief system in the 1800s when women were the majority of missionaries sent around the world, preaching the gospel, planting churches, taking care of missionary families, et cetera, to the point that, you know, and this is what I learned from some of the, well, for the book research, but I drew on a lot of your work at CBE um, and your different authors, but um, having to pull back those women, you know, um, because the numbers you know, were getting too threatening of, I think it was two to one for every missionary out in the world, two women, one man. Um, and so they were pulled back, not for the purposes of a theological argument, they were pulled back because one was um, the church in the United States needed women to become the anchor of the home once again, so that their husbands would return to church. And isn't that fascinating that women's work and career had to shift in order to address the spiritual lack that was manifesting in men at the time after the war. You know. um, 
So once again, women were called to lead, but in a very different space and one that you know pulled them away from the calling that God had put on their heart to go into all the world, you know. Um, so that's one. The other, you know, I've heard some people explain to me, because I've wondered why can a woman preach to missionaries or international folks? So why do you have no problem sending a female missionary from your church, but you won't let her preach in the pulpit? And again, there's an assumption that, oh, well, when she's out there preaching, what is it? They view those folks as less than? You know, they view the mission field as a community of less than. It's only here in America that we can only have male leaders. So again, when you start to pull apart the bricks, the argument starts to break down. And then the one I love the most is why is every Sunday school teacher a female? Uh, and they're fine teaching boys until they get reach the age of 12 or 13. Suddenly a woman's teaching and her voice becomes offensive and in, theologically inappropriate when your kid goes from 12 to 13. Right. Come on. Come right. on. Right. <laughs> you know, and I'm I'm overly abbreviating. I you oh, know, yeah, yeah. all of these yeah. all of these issues have books and books written on them. Right. But I don't I don't think it truly is patriarchy the way the UN thinks it is. I think the UN doesn't understand perhaps how to and whoever's writing this, how to parse out right. you know the nuance. So we oh, call yeah. it patriarchy. Yeah. Uh. But I think there's a boatload of other things, you know, packed in there. The same way with culture, when you start to pull at the threads of, you know, cultural norms. Excellent. Um, yeah. And a lot of that was learned culture from, again, colonialist empires and missionaries that traveled around the world. When you go back to African culture long before that, you do see a much more prominent role of women and their voice in the tribe and their right. voice in the community and decision making. Right. right. The other last thing that we all need to be thinking about is um, mm -hmm. representation. When we think of women leading, we have one model. She's up at the podium. She's the speaker. She's the, the leadership of women does manifest itself in very different ways around the world. And so women are absolutely leaders, but it may be that their husbands are returning, you know, and getting their input. And so women have a voice. It just doesn't look the same as it does in all parts of the world. And that's hard for me. That's a hard pill for me to swallow because I do want to see women leading in the, in the way I want them to lead. Right. Right. Um, right. As a leadership person, you know. Right. Great. That's excellent. Thank you for parsing that out so well. Yeah, so from your vantage point, do you see that some Christian humanitarian groups kind of really struggle with this biblical equality of women and others are, as you pointed out, are just really taking strong steps and like World Vision has been excelling at it for a really long time. What do you think uh, should be done or can be done for the groups that are really struggling with it? And how do you think this affects justice? Mm. Yeah, again, it comes down to what we call struggling. So when I, you've got your people who are dyed in the wool, they know their theology, they think, you know, they're going to stand by it. And so they don't believe women should lead and that's that be done with it. Um, I don't call those strugglers. Yeah, I think so, I'm thinking more of the ones that are wrestling, uh, will yeah. say that they believe it, but are really struggling implementing it. Yes, yes. So what can be done for them? Mm -hmm. um, it's unlikely that they're going to send people, you know, and they're going to pick up um, theological texts 
experts on any of this stuff. The reason why we took an approach uh, the way we did a systems approach with the Alliance is because first and foremost, those leaders are judged on the performance of their organization. And so we have to, it's kind of like going in through a side door of performance and then bringing people into a, a place in an environment where they can experience spiritual and theological restoration and healing. Um, what can they do? Our book, you know, not to be shameless book plug, but it is chock-a-block from beginning to end, all of the ways in which organizations can start to move the needle in this space. And one of them is the theology. One uh, whole chapter is focused on the theology. But again, if you go to these organizations and say, let us come with our theological training, probably won't go there. They probably won't go there. If you come and say, let us uh, do some training to help you increase the performance of your organization, the innovation of your organization, the employee engagement of your organization, and you start with the performance, you are more likely to have doorways in. More conversations about it. Um, we have you know, NGO networks here in America who are starting the conversation, some doing a good job. Um, it's one of the reasons why the Christian Alliance exists. We all we will keep the conversation front and center. We will apply positive advocacy. We're not going to shame the ones that are struggling and the ones that are on a journey. I don't have time for that. And shame is never, you know, a long-term solution. What we are going to celebrate are the guys that are doing, you know, guys, organizations that are doing great. Um, two, three years from now, I want to be able to post the top five small faith-based NGOs for women to work in the top five large faith-based NGOs for women to work in with very clear metrics as to why. You know, mm -hmm. at the heart of things, I'm a researcher. And that's why Wheaton College and the Women's Consortium is one of our partners at the Alliance table because we care about good data and using good data for positive advocacy. Mm -hmm. uh, but keeping the conversation alive, I think yeah. is critical. And you're doing it with this podcast and with your publications. We're trying to make sure that your work gets a megaphone put in front of it. So everything you send us goes out to our audience. And then as the Christian Alliance, you know, fully launches a membership drive in February and continues to grow, um, having more women and men at the table for this conversation, because there are so many men who care deeply about this. They just feel helpless as one individual within an organization uh -huh. um, to be able to move the needle and to be able to change the priority order. And so what it comes down to is helping all of us influence our leaders to gain that political will to start to move in this direction because we want to see fewer people in poverty today. Amen. Not because it makes a nice organization, right. but because it will improve the right. impact of our organizations. Right. Amen. And uh, would you say that's your prayer for yourself as you go forward in your colleagues, that we can see the big picture, that, that egalitarian yeah. practices, because they're biblical, impact the suffering of the world? Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And it's our prayer for, you know, the alliance and that that's what uh, we're seeking to achieve. I don't care about, I mean, I should maybe, but I don't, more women in organizations or more women this, or, you know, I don't care about those kinds of numbers. I've been called to this humanitarian space because my calling is to see God's shalom restored in these communities around the world, including our own backyard. Right. Um, right. right. 
And this is the way to do it. This is the way to do it. So if we serve a Jesus who came to bring life and life abundantly, then this is what we need to do. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Beth. And thank you for your life work, for your loving leadership, and for your vision and your faithfulness to Christ. We just admire you and thank God for you. Mm -hmm. I send that right back to both of you at CBE. Thanks for having me on today. Hey, Kim. Hey, Mimi. Whoa. I know. She has such a depth of experience, um, both in education and working with all these leaders. Yeah. And such insight on culturally yeah. what's going on, theologically what's going on, right. organizationally. Right, right. I think maybe she needs a Nobel Peace Prize or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I found it so realistic in the sense that she could really call out the organizations that were doing it well and had been doing it well and right. the ones that were coming along. And yeah. then other ones, I think they agree, but they're afraid of finances and losing their support. And right. so they're not loudly saying this is this is the heart of God. Yeah. And it's a complex equation because you really want to have the resources to reach people around the world and advance human flourishing, but it only goes so far without the equality of women. And what I like about Beth is that she has this beautiful, very rare combination of a strong prophetic voice, strategic thinking, and grace in it all. Yes, very much so. Yeah. You could really feel the, just a love for people mm -hmm. and a praise for what's going well and recognizing that. And then mm -hmm. this bird and this passion to, to push mm -hmm. it further, push the needle. <laughs> and I really hope our listeners follow the links on the story notes because Beth is doing phenomenal work every week. Uh, her, the organization that she helped Form called the Christian Alliance for Inclusive Development had their first pre-conference event at the Justice Conference at the end of last year, 2022. And we had an entire day of lectures and presentations. And this was really very much all sort of the birth child from Beth Birmingham's just 15, 20 years of incubating uh, the intersection of humanitarian work, Christian faith, and gender equality. Wow. Yeah, we'll have all of those links in our story notes, um, her book link, everything so you can follow her. And I was just doing a little research and I forgot, but she was at our 2020 conference, not in person, but video. And she gave a whole presentation on this there as well, which will also be in our story notes. Oh, yeah. Thanks for including that. You don't want to miss her. She's one of the most articulate a thoughtful leaders and really leans into the experiences of men and women around the world. So I'm excited for the all male allies session she'll have in a couple of weeks. So stay tuned for that, everyone. Yeah, that sounds great. Well, we just want to thank you all for joining us today and stay tuned to all of our new episodes coming to you weekly from our incredible team of co-hosts that look at egalitarian theology through so many different lenses. Um, in the meantime, like I said, go to the show notes and learn how you can follow Beth Birmingham and find links to her organization and books and resources that are all mentioned in this interview. 
And be sure to follow CBE International on Facebook and Twitter. Go to their website, which is new at www.cbeinternational.org. There you can get more content. You can subscribe to our blog, to magazines, and to academic journals. Watch videos and listen to audio of past conferences, including Beth Birmingham and other events that are coming up. And visit our bookstore where we you can find talented authors and subjects that will enrich your faith and equip you to use your God-given talents in leadership and service to the gospel for all, regardless of gender, ethnicity, or class. I am Kimberly Dixon. This is Mimi Haddad. And we would like to thank Landon, our support tech, and the team at CBE International that makes this podcast possible. We are Mutuality Matters. Thanks for listening. God bless everyone. Talk to you next month. Bye. Looking for more information about CBE and our mission for biblical equality? Then please visit cbeinternational.org for more information. And please be sure to tune in each week for new episodes here or wherever else you listen to podcasts.